0: A Woodside Church podcast. Good morning, Church. Good morning. My name is Mattie. As Richard said, I've been a part of the family here for as long as I can remember, and I have the pleasure and privilege of speaking to you this morning, continuing our series, looking at the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. I've got a lot of scripture that I'm going through today. I'm doing chapters 5 to 7, so bear with me. We're reading a lot of Bible today. Um, So, I'm going to start with a bit of context just to catch us up where we're up to in the story so far, looking at Israel in Canaan, looking at the nature of idols and gods, looking at the Ark of the Covenant and Samuel himself, the guy the book's named after, and then we're going to go into the story itself. Uh, I've broken it down into roughly three kind of sections, the first few verses of chapter 5, up to chapter 7, and then all of chapter 7. Um, and then at the end, I'm going to summarize some key themes, just some application points to take home. So, to start with, I love a bit of biblical history. Okay. This, uh, this part of Samuel that we're reading is taking place in about 1050 BC, so it's about 3,000 years ago. Uh, God's people called the Israelites, descended from a guy called Israel, uh, they have arrived in the promised land of Canaan. But these guys are still having a lot of trouble because time and time again they are rejecting God and are oppressed and defeated by the nations around them specifically at the moment by a nation called the Philistines of Philistia, who were the guys along the west coast of the Israelite territory. Goliath, who we read about later in Samuel, David and Goliath, that guy, he's a guy who comes from Philistia. Uh, the surrounding nations have heard stories about Israel. They've heard stories about the God of Israel and how he rescued them from Egypt by passing the Red Sea with the stories of Moses. but... These guys already have their own gods and idols that they worship, so they're not particularly interested in the God of Israel. Philistia has adopted a guy called Dagon as one of their principal gods. Dagon is a god who represents grain and prosperity, so for an agricultural nation, he's quite a powerful and quite a central god for them they would create idols of the gods that they have, and idols at this time were made of wood and inlaid with metals or made of stone, and they would go through a ritual dedication process that would very literally, for them, trans- transform that man-made idol into the very god that it represented. The Israelites, though, don't have any idols of their god. But they do have an ornate wooden box covered in gold called the Ark of the Covenant, which you might have heard about from Indiana Jones. The Ark <laughs> has a solid gold lid, and on it are two cherubim, two angels, and between them, in the space between them, it would create space for the very presence of God. And so this thing was hugely significant to Israel. It was with them when they walked through the River Jordan into the Promised Land, and the water stopped on either side of them so they could travel through. It was with them when they marched around the walls of Jericho, and the walls were miraculously destroyed of the great city. Thank you, Ruth. Um, It was significant to Israel. During this time period that we're looking at, it's called the period of, of Judges. And God would raise judges who are not judges like Judge Judy and Judge Rinder. These guys are leaders of Israel. They would act as a spokesperson for God and would deliver the people from whatever their current oppression was. And this has happened time and time again because Israel reject God and forget the things he's done and are oppressed time and time again by their surrounding nations. Samuel at this time, the guy the book's named after, is confirmed to be a reliable prophet. That is someone who hears from God and brings God's voice to the people. The things he had said had come true and he had proven that he was listening to God. Moan spoke about Samuel last week, so if you want to catch up on his story, he's on the YouTube and the podcasts um, for you to listen to. Samuel had grown up in the tabernacle which is a temple-like tent under Eli the priest who, until last chapter where he died, had been serving as Israel's judge. So, a bit of a whistle-stop tour, but that catches up, up roughly to where we are in this story. Um, we'll reference, it's a lot to take in if you're not familiar with it, but we'll reference back as we come across anything that's important. So, to start chapter 5. We start with chapter 4 as we lead on. Leading on from chapter 4, Israel are fighting the Philistines, and these guys have just lost a battle to the Philistine people. And so they have a brilliant idea. They think the Ark of the Covenant was with us before, when we crossed the Jordan, when we defeated Jericho. Let's bring it with us this time so that the Ark of the Covenant can save us. Now, of course, the Ark was a box, and it was God who saved them, not that. So this lucky charm approach to taking the Ark with them leads to an even greater defeat than the first one. Now, in Near Eastern culture, in Near Eastern warfare, there was a thing called godnapping. That is, a nation whose gods and idols were taken by an enemy nation were seen as completely humiliated and completely destroyed. So the Israelites brought their closest thing they had to an idol from the Philistine point of view. They brought that with them, so the Philistines defeat them, and naturally, they take it with them. So chapter 5 verse 1, After the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they took it from the battleground at Ebenezer to the town of Ashdod in Philistia. They carried the Ark of God into the temple of Dagon and placed it beside an idol of Dagon. The Philistines take the Ark as a trophy of their victory against Israel to, and put it in the temple of their God to show which one was the more powerful God. The God their God Dagon had defeated, from their point of view, the God of Israel. But even there with no one to lead, even there with no one to worship him, the God of Israel, our God, glorifies himself and demonstrates his power and authority. Verse 3, but when the citizens of Ashdod went to see it the next morning, Dagon had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him in his place again. The next day the Philistines walk in and they find their God, Dagon, lying bowing face down, prostrated before the Ark of God. Clearly, we can see what's going on here. One of these gods is more powerful than the other one. One of these gods should be worshipped while the other one is disregarded. But the Philistines walk in and they think, oh, that's a bit funny. What's Dagon doing dying down there? So what they do, they dust him off and they stand him back up again. Now, I don't know about you, but if I walked into my temple and found my God bowing to another one, I'd be looking for a more powerful God, probably the one that my God's bowing to. But not these guys. Uh, I would want a God that when I fall down, I want a God that picks me up and stands me back up. But these guys don't. Verse four, the next morning, the same thing happened. Dagon had fallen face down before the Ark of the Lord again. This time, his head and hands had broken off and were lying in the doorway. Only the trunk of his body was left intact. And that is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor anyone who enters the temple of Dagon in Ashdod will step on its threshold. The next morning, the same thing has happened, but this time Dagon is broken. He's lost his head, the seat of wisdom, and he's lost his hands, the tools of action. Dagon has neither the wisdom nor the strength to defend himself, let alone anybody else. After all, he's an idol made of stone. But the priests again refuse to see what all of us are seeing, the one true God displaying his power and his glory and instead they turn to the doorway and they turn the doorway into a holy object touched by the head and hands of Dagon. They turn it into a superstition so as not to tread on it in case something special with the doorway has happened. God is, gracious, is firmly bringing judgment on the idol worship of the Philistines but he is gracious in pointing them to him being the real answer and these guys are not listening. Now this story happens 3,000 years ago in a different part of the world in a different culture. So we do have to be a little bit careful about what we read into it and what we take out of it. For example, do any of us have moments where we're feeling really weak and we forget the things that God has done for us in the past we go into our workshop and carve an idol out of wood and turn it into a God that we worship? Anyone, Anyone ever done that? No? In that case, we can tick biblical idolatry off of our list and carry on. The principle is God hates idol worship. And Paul writes in Colossians 3 verse 5, don't be greedy for a greedy person is an idolater worshipping the things of this world. Now it's a bit of a tougher question. Anyone ever have moments where we're greedy? It's a bit trickier to wear. One of my greeds is, um, is collecting. Okay, um, Those of you that know me well will know that I'm quite particular about the types of clothes that I wear. Um, so, for example, all of my t-shirts and my jumpers are all come from the same brand, they've got a little animal embroidered on them. Last count, um, <clears throat> Bear with me, don't judge me, because you'll be judged too. Um, I have about 35 t-shirts and 25 jumpers from this company. All right, It's certainly more than I realistically need. Uh, similarly, with my shoes, all of my shoes are from the same brand, and I have about 20 pairs of shoes from this company. Again, realistically, more than I actually need. To be fair, I do wear all of them. Um, But I do know that if God told me today and said, Matty, I want you to get rid of all your T-shirts and jumpers and shoes, I want you to donate them to a charity shop, I'd have a hard time doing that. I'd like to think I would, and perhaps I'd even obediently give them all away in order to start rebuying them on the side (laughs) again. If you have something in your life that if God told you to give up and you know that you couldn't do it, then first pray to God that he doesn't test your obedience regarding that thing and give you the option to disobey him. And secondly, check to make sure that thing isn't actually more important to you than God is. If it is, cast it away as worthless and turn back to the one true God like the Philistines failed to do. Chapter 5, verse 6. Then the Lord's heavy hand struck the people of Ashdod and the nearby villages with a plague of tumours. When the people realized what was happening, they cried out, we can't keep the Ark of the God of Israel here any longer because he is against us. We will be destroyed along with Dagon, our God. So they called together the Philistine towns and asked, what should, we, what should we do with the Ark of the God of Israel? The rulers discussed it and said, move it to the town of Gath. So they moved the Ark of the God of Israel to Gath. Gath is the city where Goliath is from and it lines up with about the second S of Samson on that map there. I should have had a better map with it marked on it, but hey, ho. Now, these tumors that these Philistines are struck with, we're not sure exactly what they are. Some people, once some scholars would say that they're hemorrhoids. Others would say they're a type of bubonic plague, as there's an association with rats later in chapter 6. But either way, the Philistine priests fail to recognize God's sovereignty, and God strikes the health of the people, and this finally makes them wake up and realize that they've got a problem. Dagon cannot protect them because he's already been defeated. But rather than turn to God, which would mean getting rid of their idols and getting rid of their rituals and practices, they instead tried to send the presence of God away. Verse nine. But when the ark arrived at Gath, the Lord's heavy hand fell upon its men, young and old. He struck them with a the plague of tumors, and there was a great panic. So they sent the ark of God to the town of Ekron. But when the people of Ekron saw it coming, they cried out, "They're bringing the ark of the God of Israel here to kill us too." The people summoned the Philistine rulers again and begged them, Please send the ark of the God of Israel back to its own country, or it will kill us all. For the deadly plague from God had already begun, and great fear was sweeping across the town. Those who didn't die were afflicted with tumors, and the cry from the town rose to heaven. God's judgment wasn't specific to the temple of Dagon in Ashdod, so this game of hot potato of sending the ark from place to place wasn't going to solve anything. The people of Ekron were already being affected by the presence of the ark before it arrived to them, and in their panic and in their fear they finally came up with a first reasonable solution to their problem, that is to send the god, the ark of the god of Israel back to the people of Israel. God had been patient with the Philistines. He gave them a chance in the temple to repent, in Ashdod to repent. Gath to repent and finally in Ekron to repent but it took them plague after plague to realize that although they had defeated Israel in battle they had no chance against the God of Israel. Up to verse 6 we find that the ark is in Philistine territory for seven months and the Philistines turn to their priests for help because now they know they need to get rid of the ark they need to know how to get rid of the ark. The priests they recognize they've mistreated the ark and so as was culturally expected um, they would pay amends to the god of the ark as a guilt offering to recognize they have wronged it and so would make an offering to repay it. So representing the five rulers of Philistia, they make models of five gold tumors and five gold rats just like the ones they've been plagued by. It's quite an arbitrary offering, but it means representing the whole of Philistia in their offering, they realize the whole nation has wronged God. These priests don't want to have the same trouble that they've heard had happened to Pharaoh in Egypt many years before. Continuing tell their people how to return the ark in chapter verse 7, they say now build a new cart and find two cows that have just given birth to calves. Make sure the cows have never been yoked to a cart. Hitch the cows to the cart but shut their calves away from them in a pen. Put the ark of the Lord on the cart and place beside it a chest containing the gold rats and the gold tumors you are sending as a guilt offering. Then let the cows go wherever they want. If they cross the border of our land and go to Beth Shemesh in Israel, we will know that it was the Lord who had brought this great disaster upon us. If they don't, we will know it's not his hand that caused the plague, and it came simply by chance. This car is the Philistines' final test to see if it actually, really, definitely, absolutely, 100%, undeniably, was God who was bringing the plagues, not just bad luck. And these don't make it an easy test. Cows that have just given birth, being taken away from their calves, will naturally head back to their calves in Philistia. Cows that haven't been trained to pull a cart, let alone in tandem with another cow, should end in a disaster of pushing and pulling and end with the cart in Philistia. This test, though, also highlights another aspect of God's mercy to the Philistines. As I said before, I might have done, might have skipped it. The Ark of the Covenant was never meant to be carried on a car. It was meant to be carried by the priests of Israel on golden poles that slid in rings on the sides of the Ark. And so God is allowing the Philistine ignorance of his rules and using them for his purposes to return himself to his people. Up to verse 18, the Philistines follow these instructions that they said by their priests and they send the Ark on its way. And sure enough, God displays his almighty power over nature itself as the cart goes directly to Israel without veering. The cows are mooing as they go, they're unhappy, they're leaving their calves behind, but they head straight to Israel. And the Israelites in the town are overjoyed that the ark has returned to them. They turn the cart to an altar and they offer sacrifices and offerings to God. And after watching this happen, as God has faultlessly passed their test, the Philistines wipe their hands because the God of Israel is no longer their problem. And they turn around and they go back to their old ways. Finally, the ark, the presence of God is back with the people of God and they are overjoyed. But in verse 19, the Lord kills 70 men from Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. And the people mourned greatly because of what the Lord had done. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, they cried out. Where can we send the ark from here? So they sent messages to the people at kiriath jerahim and told them, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come here and get it. So the men of kiriath jerahim came to get the ark of the Lord, and they took it to the hillside home of Abinadab and ordained Elazar his son, to be in charge of it. The ark remained in kiriath jerahim for a long time. 20 years in all. And during that time, all Israel mourned because it seemed that the Lord had abandoned them. This is such a frustrating moment. The reason the Israelites are in this mess to start with is because they failed to show proper reverence to God. They failed to show proper reverence even just to the ark. And now we get this Indiana Jones type scene of the Israelites looking in the ark. God had warned them not to do this. God had told them it is too holy, it is too set apart, but they do it anyway, they fall short, and God brings his promised judgment as a result of their sin. The Israelites respond to this in the same way that the Philistines just did, and try to send the ark somewhere else. This God is too powerful for them, send him away. We believe in a powerful God. In this story, we see him control nature, bringing uh, plagues and rats, and controlling the instincts of cows. The nations of Canaan had heard this God can control the weather and the sea, as He did with the Exodus from Egypt. We read in the New Testament He has power over death itself by resurrecting Lazarus, and even defeated death after Jesus' resurrection after the cross. But just as the Philistines had started to realize how powerful this God was, the Israelites had started to forget, and I think that we forget. We tend to forget as well. I know that I do. I will sometimes I'll put God in a bag and I'll carry him with me on my back and if I'm in Milk Keynes and need a parking space that's not red because I'm not made of money I'll pop a quick prayer into God or if I've got a test coming up that I haven't revised for properly and I need a last minute solution I'll pop a prayer, in, a prayer in to God. If I can do it sometimes I'll come to church and I'll leave God at church and go away for the week and then come back and realise oh yeah God's still here and I'll put him back on. If I need God I'll turn to him and if I don't I'll forget. If I see his power through his miraculous healing and provision I will stand in wonder but that will fade away and I'll forget. I make God convenient for me. But this is the same God that we're reading about in this story. This is a God who is not to be trifled with. The Philistines tried to take him as a trophy and God brings plagues so that they in their fear try to send him away. They don't give God the respect that he deserves and they suffer as a consequence. But God, for all his power and all of his holiness, was merciful and patient with them. The Israelites, on the other hand, they look into the ark and God wiped 70 of them outright because they knew better. This wasn't a mistake that they made. It was an act of deliberate disobedience and God, God dealt with them harshly. For 20 years, Israel continues to mourn after this event. They have failed once again to turn back to the one true God and keep his commandments, and they choose instead to go their own way and do their own thing. But after this 20-year gap, God brings an answer to Israel's trouble. Chapter 7, verse 3. Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, if you want to return to the Lord with all of your hearts, get rid of your foreign gods and images of Ashtoreth. Turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal, a god of storms and Ashtoreth, a god of fertility and they worshiped only the Lord. Then Samuel told them, gather all of Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and in a great ceremony drew water from the well and poured it out before the Lord. They also went without food all day and confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. It was at Mizpah that Samuel became Israel's judge. Samuel brings a breath of new hope. He is a prophet bringing God's voice to the people and he has been raised as a judge, as a leader of Israel. He calls the Israelites back to the one true God. Israel hadn't necessarily entirely abandoned God, but what they certainly had done is brought other gods and idols into their worship to create a pantheon or a group of gods. Samuel reminds them that the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He is to be worshiped alone. And Israel, after 20 years of oppression from the Philistines, they listen to Samuel and they repent at last. They pour water out in this ceremony representing their whole inner self being displayed before the Lord. They fast as humble sinners relying on God. The location of Mizpah means watchtower or lookout, it's a place set on a hill. Israel had gathered there years before, the whole of Israel had gathered there years before to wage war against one of their own tribes, the tribe of Benjamin. It's a place that Samuel continues to come back to on his route, serving as judge. And Israel will gather there again in a couple of chapters time, when King Saul of the tribe of Benjamin is chosen to be their king, replacing God. Verse seven, but when the Philistine rulers heard that Israel had gathered at Mizpah, they mobilized their army in advance. The Israelites were badly frightened and learned that the Philistines were approaching. Please don't stop pleading with the Lord our God to save us from the Philistines, they begged Samuel. So Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. He pleaded with the Lord to help Israel and the Lord answered him. Just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel. But the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day and the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. Under Samuel's leadership, the Israelites have learned that, again, it is not the ark of the God of Israel that they turn to them before, that saves them. It is the living God of Israel. So when the Philistines attack, this time they turn to Samuel as an intercessor, as a link between them and God. Under these exceptional circumstances of impending attack, Samuel doesn't turn to fight, he turns a sacrifice of a lamb. Samuel, representing God, is saying this is the cost of our disobedience, this is the punishment for our sin, but the lamb has taken it instead of the people of Israel. God answers Samuel's prayer and this victory is attributed to God alone. It is not Samuel who wins this fight, it is not the people of Israel who win the fight, it is God who has won the fight for his people. The Israelites chase down the Philistines, and Samuel lays down a stone marker to remind Israel, who have a habit of forgetting the things God has done, to remind Israel that God has helped them in this battle against the Philistines. God has helped them in battles throughout the land of Canaan, and God has helped them ever since he rescued them with his mighty hand from Egypt. The The chapter finishes under Samuel's judgehood. Israelite villages in Philistia are restored to Israel. They have peace with the Amorite people to the east of them. And although most judges were primarily military leaders, Samuel functions more like a a modern judge that we're familiar with today. He travels in circuits of Israel, listening to God, settling disputes among the people and promoting righteousness. Samuel worked hard for the rest of his life as a judge. The visible symbol of the presence of God, the ark, that was still in Kiriath jerame But Samuel lived in the presence of God through his relationship with him. Samuel was a good leader. He spent his life doing what God had called him to do, serving people. He was a peacemaker and an intercessor, a link between the people and God. But Samuel actually points to an even greater leader than himself. When the Israelites repented and turned back to God, they went to Samuel. The sin that Israel had made needed to be paid for because a God of justice can't just let everything go with no consequence. And the consequence of sin is separation from God. The consequence of sin is death. And so Samuel sacrifices a lamb to pay that cost. The problem is that we do bad things too. We turn away from God and go our own way. And this sin separates us from God but we have a greater leader to go to than Samuel because we can go to Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God who lived a perfect life on earth, who died as a perfect sacrifice and paid the cost for all of our sin so that we can have his perfectness, we can have his righteousness. This allows us to come back to God after sin has separated us and is available to everyone and anyone who believes in him and calls Jesus their Lord. It is a free gift of the grace of God. But it costs you to lay down everything you have for him. It costs you to turn away from the other idols that you've got in your life because there's no room for them and for God. And God, Because in God there is so much more fulfillment and freedom and everything and richness than anything that the world can offer. If you've never turned to God in your life or if you, and you want to, or if you feel like you've been trying to push him away again and again and you don't want to do that anymore, or if you know you've brought other things, other idols into your life and you've crowded God out and you want to speak to someone, please speak to someone after the service. Just grab them. I'll be around. There'll be hundreds, loads of people around that would love to chat to you. So to recap some of the themes and what they might mean to us, firstly, get rid of your foreign gods, as Samuel said. The Philistines, just as the Philistines had Dagon and the Israelites had um, brought Baal and Ashtoreth into their worship, we turn the things of this world into idols as well. And this will look different to each one of us. But if this idol is a bad thing, if it's something like greed or lust or uh, pride, throw it away as worthless, get rid of it, burn it. And this can be hard to turn to God for help and he will help you. Or ask other people around you to hold you accountable. On the other hand, we can turn good things into idols as well things like family and relationships and even things like good works don't throw those things away they are good things in the, of themselves but look to god first in order to serve and love and do those things better god comes first then family and then church secondly remember who it is that you worship god doesn't change He was and is and ever will be powerful and just and merciful and gracious. He brought plagues of judgment on the Philistines for their sin and he judges us as well. We don't get the same tumors as they did because Jesus has paid that cost for us, but we are still separated from God for eternity, which is so much worse. And yet, in God's mercy and grace, he made a way for us to come back to him. Do we forget God's power and God's justice and excuse our sin by relying on his unbounding patience and grace? Grace is a gift that we can easily take for granted. Lastly, turn to Jesus as your leader. Like Israel, we repeatedly fall back into sin and there's not really anything we can do about it on our own. But like Israel, we need a leader who calls us out for the sin that we're committing, a leader who calls us to repent, a leader that points us to the Father. Jesus is that leader that we need. He's the one through whom that we can have a relationship with God. But we can help lead other people as well. We can imitate Christ by calling out sin with love, by calling people to repent and calling people, pointing them to God. It takes humility, but I encourage you, find people you can trust who will point out when you do wrong, but also people that will encourage you in your walk with Jesus. Father, thank you for your word, the Bible. Thank you for these stories of your power and your grace and your mercy. Call out in our hearts the idols that we have created and help us give them to you or to cast them away. Help us to remember who you are, your almighty power and justice, and your unfailing love and mercy. Let us not use your forgiveness as an excuse and become complacent of your sovereignty. Help us to turn to Jesus and remember that he is the way to relationship with God, and help us to lead others well as he leads us so that we can bring truth with love to one another. May the things we do be credited back to you for your glory alone, in Jesus' name,